Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Today's product, Almond Cow, is one of our favorites. And I'm going to let my husband, Mark Hyman, otherwise known as the Moo Man, tell you why he loves it so much. Why do I love it so much? How could I not love it? This product is the best. In fact, I came to California for five months and it's the one appliance that I made sure that we took with us. I'm a quarter mile from a Trader Joe's. Do I ever go there for milk? No, because I have my almond cow. We make it almost every day and then we get the yummy leftovers that also don't go to waste because we make cookies, we make cereal, we can make anything with it. Get yourself an almond cow today. Mm, I agree. Plant-based milk at its best. Go to the link in the bio and use code Laura to save. I'm Laura Hyman and welcome to Redefining Movement, a lit podcast designed to investigate all aspects of movement from my background in physical therapy and neuroscience. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter movement patterns and compassion for ourselves and others. So together we can live our most uplifted lives, benefiting all beings. Welcome to Wednesday Q&A, where you all ask the questions and we answer. I'm joined by my fearless, gorgeous, most intelligent co-host, Kristen Williams. (laughs) Hey, everybody. Let's get going. Yeah, we have some great body part achiness questions. So let's start with this one. This is from Be Up Yoga. Love your work. I have a torn labrum in the shoulder. Which exercises do you recommend? Which exercises should I avoid? Thanks. People might have heard of labrum, but maybe not. You want to just tell a little bit about what the shoulder labrum is? That's a great idea. Most people know that the shoulder is a ball and socket joint. We talk about it being more like a golf ball sitting on a tee. So you have this very shallow cup, more than a socket, that has a rim around it that's going to make it a little bit deeper. And so actually your biceps, your muscle in the front of your arm that we flex, our beach muscle, comes up, the long head attaches into the front of that labrum. So you can imagine this rim around a plate or a dish that's just helping to hold the arm bone within the socket. Well, because it's connected to bone and it has that muscular attachment to it, that tendinous attachment, it's relatively commonly torn, separated from the bony disc or the bony socket that it's sitting in. I actually think I have torn my labrum Many years ago, I was doing a manipulation on a fellow physical therapist, and I felt I had a traction of my shoulder joint. It is oftentimes hurt with a tractioning injury or a fall in an outstretched arm. 
the arm bone slams back up into the socket and then tears that little lip away. We see it a lot with repetitive overhead. So pitchers get this a lot. Tennis, repetitive overhead type work can get a tear of this labrum. And so the interesting thing about whether it's the labrum of the shoulder, whether it's the labrum of the hip, we can function with the tear of the labrum. So much so that, in fact, as you get older, a lot of surgeons will decide we're not even going to repair this because it's quite an extensive surgery to tack that labrum back down to the bone. The time it takes to heal is a long time in a sling, in a very restrictive sling. Let's say, and by older, I mean in your 40s, if you tear your labrum, a lot of times they're going to say, well, we're going to do something called a biceps tenodesis, where we're going to take that, where that long head of the biceps comes in and attaches, we're going to detach it and staple that biceps tendon just a little bit further down onto the humerus away from the socket, which is part of your scapula, your shoulder blade. So you can still use your biceps fully without that biceps constantly pulling on the tear. You can imagine once you have a tear, you destabilize that shoulder. So if we keep doing our bicep work, we can continue to pull on it. So the things that I've done, at least with my shoulder, and I've never had an MRI. I really don't know what is torn. I just suspect you could hear something tear in my shoulder. It was not fun. But the things that I'm just very careful with are yoga or with push-ups, chaturanga, you know, how you lower. You really have to just be mindful of the fact that you now have a less stable joint, particularly in the front for most of us where that biceps comes in and attaches. A lot of people tear them anterior to posterior. So then you come into lowering from a plank to the floor. And if your shoulder is diving in to the front of where that labrum is torn, it's not going to feel good. So I work really hard on making sure that my humerus, the arm bone, is set as centered as possible. And I'm doing that with the strength of my rotator cuff, of my periscapular muscles, of the muscles holding my shoulder blade, because not only do you want to keep the arm bone in place, you want to make sure that the shoulder blade is set. So it's a very controlled lowering. It does not look like your traditional yoga where people dive into it. That's just asking for trouble, regardless if you have a labral tear. But whenever mine flares up, I go right back into doing some rotator cuff strengthening. Very boring. But what I think happens, whether it's a rotator cuff tear, whether it's a labral tear, is When things start to flare up, I think that the brain map gets a little off. It gets a little goofy and you aren't working with as good a mechanics. So I watch my mechanics in a functional range and then I still do some open chain. Open chain means just your average band or with a small hand weight, external rotation, internal rotation, some stability work, some outreaching. If you're watching on YouTube, you kind of see it have my arm out. I'm doing a little bit of stability work with a longer lever arm, but nothing with big arcy motions. What that does is that just reminds the brain how to stabilize that shoulder, that ball within the socket a little bit better. And then your brain goes, oh yeah, I know what to do. And then it also, I think it's the blood flowing to the area, which just helps flush out any inflammation and get things to heal. I mean, a lot of else you have to add to that. Yeah, I would just echo the doing something for 
getting the rotator cuff and the scapula muscles more online, meaning that they have a responsiveness right away to be able to help that humeral head stay centered. I do that a lot with a lot of clients get one pound can if they don't have a one pound weight and just bring the arm forward and do some very small circles. It's not meant to be a lot of movement. It's actually made to just get the stimulation to the muscles in the back. So that a lot of times when we hurt something in the front, we think that's the problem and we just need to get more of the muscles of the back of the shoulder into the upper back to really get online and help out. So things to do would be stabilize and then dynamic stability, keeping track. And this is where you might want to film yourself. Of course, this is assuming that you know you needed more than you would go and see a professional who would really help you, but you can film yourself. You know, imagine this little ball having to stay steady. And then when you film yourself and say, even in plank, not moving, what is it doing? Is it diving down? The other way you can tell is what are your scapula doing? If they're really sliding away from the spine, that's a protracted position. And that's going to have the influence of the shoulders going forward. And then that's going to be loading that area that's probably not going to feel great. So doing quadruped, doing plank, doing modified side plank, doing things on the wall where you just are holding your hands and then starting a little bit of an elbow bend and ensuring that you're not moving that humerus. Because when she was talking about how the bicep is connected there, every time you're bending your elbow and the humeral head isn't positioned and stable, that's going to potentially put a lot of strain on the labrum. So that's what you want to avoid is more strain. Because as Kristen mentioned, a lot of people live with little tears. So if you go to MRI, this is the worst thing in a way. This is the question we would both ask. What does it feel like? Because unfortunately, once you get that in your head, a tear sounds really dangerous. You're going to almost predict pain before it even happens or predict discomfort. So what does it feel like for you? And so often people will say, it just feels like it's kind of not Stable, like it almost is dragging down. or So that's where you want to connect more of the brain into that area to offer more stability. And you can also do some taping. That can help if you go to somebody who knows how to tape to give you that sense of more stability, either just in daily life, say if you're in a position at work where your shoulder's hanging a lot or just feels like it's not static positions, not that they're going to cause the pain because usually it's with movement, you're going to feel it, but they can set you up for less optimal movement patterns. So those are the things that I would think about for sure. Yeah. And if you haven't checked out our site, Lit Daily, we've got a lot of great drills on there for stability of the shoulder, stabilization that you can check out. The Start Here series is so great. Like we've had people who have had major shoulder injuries, labral tears, frozen shoulder we designed it so that an 80-year-old who might have less mobility could come in there and do it. And it's to, again, stimulate activity in a really intelligent way in smaller ranges and then getting into bigger ranges. Great question. All right. We also had one that was sent in from our friend Una. Hello, lovely lit team. I have a question for the Q&A, please. I have just booked a five-day skiing holiday for my family in February. And I'm feeling a bit risk averse this year, partly because last spring I saw so many people in knee braces. And I know the orthopods here 
were run off their feet due to all the knee injuries who came back from the slopes. Do Laura and Kristen have any opinions on whether skiing or snowboarding is a safer option? I can do both and wear a helmet always, plus wrist guards for boarding. If you have time, some pre-holiday conditioning tips would be greatly appreciated. Thank you, Una. I'll launch in a little bit here. Not being a skier or a snowboarder, although I've learned to ski and I skied for many years with my family, but I learned as an adult, which is way different. So the first thing I would say is, Una, did you learn one of these as a younger kid? Because you are by far much better off if you've learned as a child. It's more hardwired. And so that's important because just like riding a bike, literally, I could hop on and ride a bike, even if my muscles haven't been working in that way. But there's a memory of that and they start to turn on more. It might be sore or something, but I'm probably not as much at risk of injuring myself. Similarly, in skiing, like people can do it once a year. That's not something they're doing once a week or even. And they could do it for a season and they'll be fine because they did it in their younger years. I'm not talking like you had to be four, but people who started really young are, again, this is like riding a bike to them. They just know how to do it. If it wasn't something that you have done year after year, then I would say you do need to prep because your muscle memory, your groove isn't as deep as it is for those people. And the way you do want to prep is you want to strengthen the long endurance hold of being in knee flexion, loaded knee flexion, like a squat. And so I know it's an old classic, but just the squat on the wall and just holding that and holding it. And then that's great for static. Obviously, you're going to be doing dynamic turns and curves and all that, all the lateral muscles. And so you can start with getting a squat and getting a towel underneath, say, your right foot and just starting to slide that out. So you're having more demand on one leg for some stability while another leg is moving, but also has some dynamic component to it. Again, it doesn't quite simulate skiing, but it's getting those muscles turned on. You can also do like there are some skiing equipment that stimulates skiing a lot more to, again, get those muscles prepped because it's different. It's strong legs and hips strong core, but it's also the endurance of it. So people typically, when they get injured, they're getting injured. Don't ever say, okay, this is my last run because it's the last run. Well, the reason is you're usually more fatigued. Your response time isn't as great. For skiing versus snowboarding, again, I don't snowboard, but I have talked to people and my husband does both. And it's kind of like a 50-50. Like say you've been skiing your whole life. Skiing is good. You're going to have those neural wiring that's stronger, whereas snowboarding, you have a wider base of support. You don't have necessarily as much of the curving. That's where I think the jeopardy on your knees is not as much. And falling out of a snowboard has a different impact than falling from skiing. This is such a small pole, so I don't know. But I haven't heard of people tearing their ACL snowboarding. I'm sure they could. Whereas skiing, it's like, forget about it. <laughs> you hear it all the time. And I think it's because, again, your knee is doing different things and then your body continues to move over it with the snowboard. It stays with you so you aren't planting and then you continue to move. Your snowboard is just attached to you almost like a foot. That would be my rough guess. What would you say, KB? I absolutely agree with you. And I think I'm like you, Laura. I didn't learn as an adult. I learned in middle school. So I'm a 
decent skier, but I've never had a ski lesson. You know, I really should take a ski lesson because ever since I became a physical therapist, I am ski averse because I can feel the torque through the knees. You've got this long ski on, which just has turned your foot into this huge lever that if you catch an angle, the tear is very easy. Just like Laura said, work endurance for those quads, just for those stabilizers, because it's when you're tired. Because you're going to catch a little angle, you're going to hit a patch of ice or hit a funny mogul. But when you're not tired, you can respond to that really quickly. When you're fatigued, usually you're going before you feel it. Now, a lot of these skis do have the quick release that's supposed to work. But if you're like me and don't own your own skis and you're renting and there's not going to be the utmost stellar equipment while I'm skiing purely for the knees, I take regular breaks because I know I'm less likely to injure myself. But absolutely, Laura, when you talk about snowboarding versus skiing, snowboarding, your feet are fixed. You've got a wider base support. I think the bigger knee injury with a snowboard is you see people will go forward and they slam their knees into the ground. So more of like a bone bruise type of a knee injury, but that's about the extent of it. Maybe a hyperextension of both knees, but even that, I think there's much better stability to the ACL, PCL type area versus skiing. What I would be more concerned about with snowboarding is like the whiplash and even like the low back. Cause I mean, I will watch people wipe out and even a hyperflexion. They can get that hyperflexion of the knees. Hip falling on a hip hard is a big one for snowboard because the legs go out and what's going to hit that hip coming down. So you're taking a risk. So get some lessons, start on the bunny hill, take rest breaks and have a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah, I do. And the only other comment I would make, and this might not even be relevant for you, Una, but for anybody else who's listening, is also the conditions. If it's super icy, that has a risk, of course. But listen, if it's really like melted snow, that's where you can really hurt your knees. I've done it myself and I've worked with people. They said, oh, the snow is getting mushy. It slows you down, but it also doesn't allow you to curve. So you are going faster than your body can respond to curving because of the conditions. So prepare, have fun, and be safe. Okay, we have time for one more. This will be about in Nick Jant. What's the most challenging thing as a yoga teacher? My responsibility is what I'm bringing to the table. And that's about it. I think a lot of yoga teachers want to please everybody. And so not taking people's individual responses to either what you've created, individual feelings for how they're feeling that day, not taking that personally, because you might have someone who gets up and leaves the class, your immediate reaction is going to be, I did something wrong. When in fact, their watch could have dinged them that their daughter just got into a car wreck. Like, you know, you really don't know why, or they had to leave early and they didn't tell you, or you're trying to read their body language. It is easy to judge yourself anytime, whether it's being a yoga teacher, it's I think being a creator of any type. Create for yourself, create what brings you joy and teach what feels good to you. I think that reflects in how you teach it. 
and then let go of how other people respond to it because there's no way to please everybody. You don't know what someone's going through. We can be so self-centered that we assume it's about us when I would argue probably 85 or 90% of the time, it's got nothing to do with you. I have absolutely had days where I've just come to the mat and been like, I don't want to be here. 80% of the time, by the end, I'm like, I'm so glad I came. But there are those 20% of the time where it's like, I can't get out of my own head. It's about me. It's got nothing to do with the teacher. Teacher's teaching a great class. But I try not to let that show as a teacher. But I know that there are people who aren't thinking about that. And they might be shuffing, hemming, and hawing. They might be on their phone. I think that, to me, the hardest thing is just letting how other people react, how other people respond, and just being true to your purpose, your plan, and just find joy in that. I think I can answer this two ways. One, as a teacher, but also as a teacher of teachers and seeing what I see is the biggest challenge for teachers. So it's kind of both. Because for me at this point, I don't have the challenge. And because I've done what Krista said, I've really stuck to what felt right and true for me. That doesn't mean it was always easy. You know, I always talk about like when I was creating lit, a lot of people liked it. And then there'd be people who were like, this isn't yoga. And I think for me, I got challenged by that. And that actually worked because that made me really be like, I believe in this and I'm just going to do it and I'm okay. I have to be okay. I've learned to be okay that people might not see it this way I see it. And so that's been a great lesson and less of a challenge because I was pretty clear on what I wanted. What I've seen, similar to what Kristen mentioned, is being too concerned about pleasing other people. Also, another one is seeing that teachers lose their own practice. They don't think they know enough. So they go and take all of these different courses and just this feeling of never being enough and that challenge, like, I can't teach people if I don't know how to do this or I can't explain that. And it's like, you don't have to know everything. Like, teach from your heart, certainly get educated and always be curious and learn more, but you don't have to take 10 courses on everything from somatic therapy to myofascia to ankle injuries start, teach, learn, repeat. And everybody will at some point probably feel like they're floundering a little bit. And so I think the biggest challenge as a teacher of anything is to immediately recognize that there's a vast amount you do not know, but just teach what you do know and do it with passion and joy. I love that. (laughs) Because that's what I hear all the time. And I'm like, You got to apply what you've learned so far and continue to learn, but you can't get consumed with this idea that people are going to be like, does she know about quantum mechanics? No. (laughs) People want variety. Yes. I take some people who know way less about the body than me, and I'm not sitting there going, well, you know, I'm just listening to what they uniquely are bringing, which is wonderful. You know, so I think... You have to believe that everybody is pulling for you. All right. Well, love your questions. As always, you can submit them at support at lityoga.com. You can also reach out to us on Instagram. I am kbwilliams99. Laura is laura.hyman. Just send us a DM and we will reply to those and uh, put them in a little folder and try to get back to you 
And as always, please check out our platform, Lit Daily. You can just Google that or you can find the link in my bio, links probably in Laura's bio as well on our podcast, Instagram. Check us out. There's a lot of really amazing stuff. And at the end of the day, the one thing you will never, ever regret spending money on is you and your health. And the Lit Daily is such an abundance of knowledge-based, mindful, intelligent movement that will help you move better and breathe better and calm your nervous system and really feel more joy. This is what we're living for and giving out. We love it so much. So check it out. All right. We're pulling for you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Redefining Movement. If you like what you've heard, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Feel free to leave us a rating and review or share with someone you know check us out at www.litmethod.com. 